0: Hello party people, my name is Luke Marshall and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And today we're going to be doing our second part of the 2001 Anthrax Attacks. If you didn't listen to the last episode, you can just go ahead and listen to this episode. You'll be able to follow most everything. But if you do want to learn more about it, I would recommend that you go and check out the last episode. And for those who did listen, this will be just a little bit of a refresher. For those who haven't listened, I'll go ahead and tell you a little bit about what it is that we talked about. We talked about how the official story, the current official story that I should say, that the anthrax attacks were done by some lone nut, a disgruntled Fort Detrick lab employee, went and did the anthrax attacks, Dr. Bruce Ivins, how that doesn't really check out, and how it seems that there was Not a foreign group who was behind it, which was kind of the initial thing that people were rolling with in the wake of the anthrax attacks, which also occurred right after the 9-11 attacks. You know, initially we were trying to blame terrorists, possibly backed by the evil Iraq and that crazy guy, Saddam Hussein. And there was, you know, a definite effort to try and link the 2001 anthrax attacks to both al-qaeda and to you know Saddam Hussein's Iraq and that would be their state backer and this was really more Something that was done by the neocons in order to try and create a justification for their already pre existing plans for the Middle East. So, we talked a little bit about that. We also talked a little bit about the type of anthrax that was used in the attacks, the AIM strain, and how this was predominantly something that existed at American laboratories, uh, you know, US government laboratories. And we talk about all kinds of other things. We talk about some of the seeming foreknowledge in the media and amongst people in the Bush administration about the anthrax attacks and what this possibly means for the official narrative and what it is that we should think about the 2001 anthrax attacks. We talk a little bit about the Dark Winter simulation, which was this simulation that was Talking about a smallpox pandemic, but then, you know, it also talks a little bit about follow up attack with anthrax done by evil terrorists, you know, possibly backed by Iraq, and how some of the people who were participants in the Dark winter simulations were also directly related in some sort of capacity to the anthrax attacks and about how people who kind of have this weird relation to the dark winter simulation, such as Jerome Hauer, he would also have some sort of links to the 9-11 attacks and how he would also be related in some way to the current response to the COVID-19 pandemic if you want to call it a pandemic, you know, but anyhow, all kinds of interesting stuff that we talked about, and I think that we covered a lot of ground, and also for those of you who want to learn more about it, I've been getting a lot of my research from the 2001 Anthrax Deception, a case for domestic conspiracy by Graham McQueen, so highly recommend everybody go check that out, and so I guess without further ado, we can just go ahead and jump in to talking about that white powder and no not the powdered sugar that you would put on some sort of tasty treat we're not talking about that bolivian marching powder we're not talking about that talcum powder that gives you cancer i don't know if that's actually true i'm just talking about my out my ass on that but Have you guys ever seen those, those, you know, like, uh, do you have cancer? Do you think it came from talcum powder? You want to join this class action lawsuit or whatever? I don't know, but I would, uh, I would believe it, you know, some sort of huge corporation selling us powder that's bad for us. It's not the most unbelievable far-fetched thing in the world. But anyways, we're talking about anthrax powder. Well, I guess today we might actually be talking a little bit more about liquid anthrax because Finally, going to talk a lot about the crop dusters that I mentioned in the title of the last episode. So if you listen to that whole episode and you're like, what the hell, I didn't hear much talk about crop dusters. Well, you're going to get all your crop duster talk today. So I've been rambling for probably about five minutes now. Let's just go ahead and get into the meat and potatoes. Of what we're talking about today so the 9-11 hijackers and the anthrax attacks how do they relate to one another well we talked about how the first casualty in the anthrax attacks was Robert Stevens in the last episode but he worked as a photo editor for the publication the Sun which is you know this kind of tabloid poke uh, this tabloid publication and it, the Sun is located in Boca Raton and it was there in Florida that he that robert stevens would die and the editor-in-chief of the sun mike irish he was married to this real estate agent named gloria so gloria irish who would be the one to find apartments for two of the 9-11 hijackers in the summer of 2001 so we're already covering some ground here we have robert stevens he works at the sun the editor-in-chief of the sun was married to a real estate agent who would find two of apartments for 9-11 hijackers in the summer of 2001 and this is of course shortly before the 9-11 attacks would take place so one of these men who gloria irish would find apartments for and forgive me again if i uh, don't pronounce some of the names correctly my apologies in advance. I have heard from at least one person that I could be better at, at pronouncing things, and I'm in total agreement. I'm not arguing with you. but uh, So one of these men was Marwan al-Shahi, and he was close to the alleged ringleader of the attacks, Muhammad Atta. And he had lived with him in Hamburg and he had been privy to some of the earliest plans to attack America, at least some of the earliest plans, according to the official narrative. There's going to be a lot of alleges here for the next little bit because as we'll talk about in a little bit, a lot of the stories surrounding the hijackers don't particularly make sense. And so the two, Atta and Shahi, were said to even have had a joint banking account with one another. And Atta was the one who was said to have flown a plane into the North Tower with al Shahi shortly after flying a plane into the South Tower. And so the other hijacker who Irish helped find an apartment was a man by the name of Hamza al-Ghamdi. And he was one of the five hijackers aboard United Airlines Flight 175, which was the one that would crash into the South tower with the lead hijacker being al shahi and so the story of the connection between irish and the hijackers it would uh, first be reported on october 14th of 2001 with more prominent publications sharing the story the following day and so justin blum would say that he had interviewed gloria irish twice in september which would be before the anthrax attacks even occurred so Gloria would say in these interviews that she recalled driving al Shahee and Al-Ghamdi around for three weeks while helping them apartment hunt. And she would say of al Shahee, he was the only customer I ever had who called up to say he would be five minutes late. So I guess al um didn't have the best manners when it came to Buildings in America, but he would have better manners when it came to apartment hunting. But anyhow, Irish would say of Al Shahi, I mean, Marwan called me all the time. And she also said that they were calling a lot. Marwan would come in laughing, saying, It's us again. I had never met Arabs before, and there they were. I wanted to tell them I was Jewish, but I didn't. So now we're getting a little bit of a look into the Uh, relationship between this real estate agent who's you know kind of connected to the sun where we have the first anthrax death take place and she would also help them find apartments and so these weren't the only hijackers who were said to have known irish apparently nawaf al Hamzi had been with these two hijackers while they were, you know, out there apartment hunting, living it up HGTV style. And it was said that the two apartments that Irish had found were both home to hijackers, meaning that there would be four separate hijackers that would essentially be housed by Gloria Irish. And so an article from the St. Petersburg Times Published on October 15th would say of one of these apartments, which was the focus of a federal investigation, and this is the apartment that was located at 755 Dautrell Road, known as the Dautrell Racquet Club apartment. The delay, the delay apartment is central to a massive federal investigation into the terrorist attacks. Investigators trying to piece the puzzle together created a diagram that includes photos of the 19 hijackers who seized control of four planes on September 11th. At the center of the diagram, which was obtained by the Miami, Air, Miami Herald, an image of a house with the address 755 Doe Trail Road. Arrows connect nine of the hijackers to the icon. And so the St. Petersburg Times would say that this finding would link the hijackers and the company American Media Inc. And American Media Inc. is the owner of the Sun tabloid, naming the article hijackers linked to tabloid. And the article would also talk of a clear link between the terrorists targeting America and the South Florida company hit by the anthrax attacks. Thank mm-hmm. you. So the Irishes, Mike and Gloria, they would say that this is all coincidence. And Gloria would say, "I can't blame the media for trying to build a story, but in fact, there was none. You know, so I guess apparently they're kind of being a connection between the company attacked by the anthrax attackers and the 9 eleven hijackers being linked isn't much of a story, and while, you know, the government and people in the mainstream media at first tried to portray as if there was a link between these attacks, they now, that the official story, you know, it's hard to argue that the anthrax doesn't have a domestic origin, you know, all of a sudden we drop any mention of the the 9-11 hijackers, but we'll get more into that later, but anyways, you know, Irish is saying that there is no story here, and the FBI would also try to paint this all as a coincidence with FBI spokesperson Judith Orojuela saying, it's not just a coincidence when speaking, um, it's just a coincidence, I'm sorry, when speaking of the connection on October 14th, 2001. So uh, Orojuela, for me, you know, I, I misspoke. She is saying it is just a coincidence. Um, the Washington Post would say that, according to Orojuela, There is no connection, there's no indication that Gloria Irish's work with the suspected hijackers is connected to the anthrax case. And so, while Orohuela would say that she was sure there would be, you know, some sort of follow-up, the FBI still contends to this day that this connection is nothing more than coincidence. But this is things observed. We don't easily believe in coincidence. So, in addition to other reasons that we will explore in the podcast as to, you know, why this theory doesn't hold much water, McQueen makes note of some of the reason it strains credulity, that this connection is nothing more than happenstance. So, Graham McQueen says, But the coincidence theory is not credible. Many hijackers lived at one time or another in this vicinity. Six of them had addresses in Delray Beach or Fort Lauderdale, a few miles from the AMI building where The Sun was published. AMI employees are said to have gone to the same gym as Otta. In addition, two of the hijackers were reported to have taken out subscriptions to publications of AMI, where Stevens worked. Mike Irish, a licensed pilot was a former member of the Civil Air Patrol based at Lantana Airport, the same airport where Atta supposedly rented a plane in August of 2001. Anthrax victim Stevens lived in Lantana. So, you know, there we have, just from Graham McQueen, some of the spatial coincidences, or maybe not coincidences, as it is, but anyhow, you know, also some other information in there, you know, not saying that Mike Irish is necessarily guilty of anything, but it is interesting that he is in Civil Air Patrol, we have a lot of interesting people throughout history coming out the Civil Air Patrol, you know, like, people like David Ferry and and stuff like that, you know, I think Jimmy Fallon Gong has talked a lot about all the weird people coming out of Civil Air Patrol and kind of the, the CAP connection, if you will, so don't have time to dive into that we hardly have time to dive into the 9-11 hijackers and how they relate to the anthrax attacks but hey that's what we're gonna do so irish wasn't only familiar with the two hijackers but she was also acquainted with robert stevens who her father had known for 25 years whom she would know personally by finding his house for him So not only is she, you know, connected to this The Sun publication in some sort of way, not only is she connected to the 9-11 hijackers, but she also has a direct connection to Stevens, the first death in the anthrax attacks. And so McQueen rightfully points out in the book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception, you know, that the question that we should ask when it comes to uh, the information that this brings up is not whether or not the hijackers were involved in sending out the anthrax letters but rather the question that we should ask in light of the evidence is who actually committed the anthrax attacks but whether someone or a group tried to frame the narrative to look like it was muslim terrorists behind both the 9/11 and the anthrax attacks you know so that that's the real question is Or is somebody, is some group trying to frame the 9-11 hijackers as responsible for the anthrax attacks? Because, you know, everybody today argues that the anthrax attacks are domestic in origin. The FBI would tell you it's a lone nut, but we talked about last episode some of the problems with that. But here's the thing. If somebody or more likely in my opinion if some group of people is trying to frame the 9-11 attackers as being responsible for the anthrax attacks it would suggest a domestic origin to both attacks and that's why i think that the story of the 9-11 hijackers and some of the weird connections to you know the anthrax attacks and possible plans of theirs to attack with anthrax were dropped like a hot potato but anyhow let's keep going so you know in the last episode you know we explored everything from the text of the letters themselves to what high level intelligence and bush administration officials were saying and it was obvious you know that they were trying to attempt to implicate muslim fundamentalist fanatics as responsible for these attacks And even went so far as, you know, to basically claim that they may have had a state backer with that state being Iraq, you know, which is very convenient for the neocon playbook. But, you know, some people have attempted to adequately defend the coincidence theory that the 9-11 hijackers and this Florida connection that we have been talking about is, you know, just kind of random. But let's take a look into why that doesn't necessarily check out. So by saying that whoever was behind the anthrax letters used the 9-11 attacks as an opportunity to frame Muslims by making a first attempt in Florida, which proponents of the theory said that it was known to have been a locale of the hijackers at the time of the attacks, but... Let's see why this doesn't actually check out. The problem is that they have no way to account for the connections of the hijackers to Gloria Irish, AMI, and Stevens, who were not known to the public until after Stevens was dead. So there is no way that Bruce Ivins or any other lone nut they could try and frame could have access to this information. And... It also fails to take into account all the information provided in the last podcast that suggests, you know, foreknowledge and a domestic group being responsible for the attacks. And as mentioned in the previous podcast in detail, there appears to have been a concerted effort by those in the intelligence community and community and the Bush administration to frame Muslim terrorists, possibly backed by Iraq as the culprits behind a future biological attack following the 9-11 attacks. And, you know, we'll also get into this podcast, a narrative seeded about a potential bioweapon crop duster attack. But let's real briefly hear from Graham McQueen about other stories placed into the public consciousness that were meant to frame the hijackers that are absent of any current conversation, that are absent in any current conversation on the uh, anthrax attacks. So this is Graham McQueen, The Florida narrative referred to above do not exhaust the repertoire of stories meant to connect the purported Al-Qaeda attackers to the anthrax attacks. The crop duster scenario is discussed later. uh, The New York Times published a story of a hijacker with a mysterious black lesion on his neck, later judged by some experts to have been cutaneous anthrax. The chief experts in this case were associated with the John Hawkins Center for Civilian Biodefense, one of the co-sponsors of the Dark Winter Simulation. The same article reported a hijacker looking for relief from irritation of the hands, supposedly resulting from his work with chemicals needed for the production of bioweapons. There was a report of hijacker corporeal remains after the alleged crash of the United Airlines Flight 93 on 9-11, testing positive for anthrax, and a separate report of an al-Qaeda facility in in overseas site that tested positive for anthrax all of these reports were used to link 9 attacks to the anthrax attacks considered important evidence at one time the reports are now passed over in silence and obvious it's you know obvious why they are passed over in silence now because as previously stated in which we will continue to talk about through this episode if there's a domestic origin to the anthrax attacks and that's admitted by everyone including the FBI now but there is a legitimate connection between the 9/11 hijackers and the anthrax attacks but we know that the anthrax attacks had a domestic origin that could begin to suggest some pretty scary things for the official story of the 9/11 attacks something that goes you know beyond like the 28 pages Saudi Arabia safe type 9-11 truth, you know, it would start to point to people, you know, possibly in the Bush administration and people in the intelligence community and what have you. So, you know, the the neocon cabal that still to a large extent runs things to this day and was, you know, kind of at its zenith, you know, by some people's estimation during the Bush administration. But anyways, let's dive a little bit deeper into the hijacker themselves because as McQueen lays out in the 2001 Andra, anthrax deception there were undoubtedly young airmen with connections to the 9/11 attacks i think that there are very few people who deny that even in the 9/11 truth community at least among those who are well informed but Uh, You know, so there was obviously, you know, young Arab men with connection to the 9-11 attacks who were present in the US, you know, they were attending flight schools and renting apartments from Gloria Irish, and leading up to September 11th, you know, had all kinds of interesting stories said about them, but what is lacking in the realm of evidence is that these young Arab men were the ones to plan the 9-11 attacks, or even that they were the ones to hijack four planes on that day. Which I'm sure a lot of you guys are familiar with some of this, but we'll give over, you know, a quick rundown about some of that stuff here in just a second. But what McQueen contends, and I tend to agree with this, is that these men were following a script that would leave a trail for public consumption, and that was made to tie them to the 9-11 attacks. And it seems as if, you know, the big discussion of today's episode, as if there was also a failed attempt to try and tie them to the anthrax attacks, but... You know, we had to just kind of forget about all that once, you know, it was admitted that the anthrax attacks were domestic in origin. But researcher Elias Davidson has said that there should be five classes of evidence that it should have been provided by American authorities after September 11th in relation to the hijackers. And so these five classes of evidence are authenticated passenger list or flight manifest for the hijacked flights, authenticated boarding cards, authenticated security videos from the airports from which the planes were hijacked that show passengers of the planes arriving at the airport in front of check-in counters, then going through the security checkpoints, and then boarding the aircraft, sworn testimonials of personnel who were present at the boarding of the aircraft, and formal IDs of the bodies or the remains of the bodies from the crash sites, including chain of custody reports. And so what did our friend, friends and, you know, the U.S. authorities do? Well, they not only failed to deliver on all classes of these evidence, but they failed to provide even a single one. You know, so, I mean, how can we even really pin it all down on the 19 hijackers when, you know, we don't have any of that information that was just listed and that's before we even get into some of the other oddities surrounding these hijackers which let's just do that real quick and this is not comprehensive by any stretch of the means but it's enough to get people to question it but i have a smart audience i'm sure that you guys have already questioned all of this before but nonetheless sometimes a refresher is good So, pilots whose planes gets hijacked, they can punch in a four-digit code to alert the FAA, but out of the four planes that were hijacked, not one of these pilots or their crew punched in the code, including Flight 93, which crashed into Shanksville, where it supposedly took the hijackers no less than 30 seconds to break into the cockpit. Um, One minute, the public is led to believe that, you know, these hijackers are Islamic fundamentalists who are hell-bent on, you know, I don't know, committing terrorist acts, so maybe there can be future Sharia law or whatever. But in the next minute, we are told by the media that they're out there railing cocaine, getting lab dances, hanging with prostitutes, living with pink-haired strippers, drinking until intoxication, and fooling around with sex toys. Doesn't sound quite like an Islamic fundamentalist to me. And then we are also led to believe that these hijackers, who would bat, you know, 750 when it came to penetrating the most heavily defended airspace in all the world, pulling off aerial maneuvers that would, you know, make Maverick from the Top Gun movies ashamed of his piloting abilities who leading up to the attacks were secretly planning this absolute assault on american buildings including the pentagon were also such prima donnas that they couldn't help but to make a public spectacle of themselves everywhere they went doing everything short of you know throwing a hissy fit in public wearing shirts that say look at me look at me I'm about to attack the World Trade Center or something along that line. So, I mean, it's almost that ridiculous. Like, Let's take Mohammed Atta, for instance, who would have a number of stories circulate about him, some of which are pretty crazy, you know, that he left incriminating evidence in his luggage and disturbing airport employees that he got pulled over without a license and then he failed to show up for court resulting in a warrant for his arrest that he was getting drunk and swearing at restaurant employees that he abandoned a plane on the runway list goes on and on and on but at the same time you know we're led to believe that muhammad atta is one of the ringleaders on the most damaging attack on the most heavily defended airspace in all time and that You know, how does he go about being super secretive in preparing for this attack? Well, by doing all the things that we just listed and some more that we will get into later. But also something that is striking about the hijackers is their complete and total incompetence. Hani Hanjor, who supposedly flew a Boeing 757 into the Pentagon by executing an 8,000-foot, 270-degree descending corkscrew turn, you know, before coming completely level with the ground and hitting the pentagon in the budget analyst office where you know just so happened that people were working on the missing 2.3 trillion dollars that was announced by rumsfeld the day before um you know you know we're also led to believe that he can do this but at the same time an air traffic controller at Dulles airport would tell abc news the speed the maneuverability the way he turned we all thought in the radar room all of us unexperienced air traffic controllers that that was a military plane and, you know, he would also, uh, well, here, we'll, we'll just talk a little bit about it. I mean, like, you know, while some like to point out that he had a commercial pilot certificate, this certificate you, you know, would only allow him to begin training to fly commercial planes, not to actually fly them. And he would end up failing the class that he took for this. So that's not really good evidence. And Hanjor had also been reported numerous times to the FAA by one of his flight schools, where the manager, Peggy Chevrette said that she found his skills to be basically totally inadequate. And three weeks prior to the hijackings, Houndor was still unable to adequately fly a single-engine Cessna. And for you guys that know about planes, you know how ridiculous that is, but basically a single-engine Cessna is like baby's first starter plane, and he couldn't even fly one of those, you know, with ease and so the idea that he can you know hijack a 757 and do 270 degree descending 8000 feet corkscrew turns and come level with the ground and exceed the i'm pretty sure that he also exceed like the recommended speed which to fly those planes at i mean all of it's just pretty ridiculous and there are plenty of pilots out there who i mean there's a whole group pilots for 911 truth they have documentaries and stuff so if you want to learn more about that stuff you can But there are also many more oddities to the official narrative of the hijackers. Like another strange thing about the hijackers is how it seems as if at every step of the way they were being set up to take the fall for the attacks with a seemingly staged crime scene left in the wake of 9-11. So hijacker Satam Al-Sakami's passport was allegedly found intact amidst the World Trade Center rubble. You know, I mean, they could hardly identify any bodies and and stuff like that. I mean, basically everything that was in the vicinity of the World Trade Center's collapsing was just like essentially vaporized. And then the buildings fall into their own footprint. But they're able to find, you know, his completely unharmed passport. But there's also evidence that Atta supposedly left behind at Logan Airport. You know, all this stuff that is just so damning in the context of the 9-11 attacks that's almost kind of comical, you know, a flight simulation manuals for Boeing planes, a Quran, a note to future hijackers about how to mentally prep yourself for the big day, his will and passport, an internal driver's license, a religious cassette tape. I think that's all, of it, but there could very well be more stuff that, you know, was found amongst it. But another couple of example of such finds that strain credulity come from Tony James, the FAA accident investigator who played a leading role in the investigation to the Flight 93 crash in Shanksville. So GA News relates these stories as follows, and I will try to put URLs to everything and list all of my sources in the show notes. So I'm going to try and remember to do that. So if you want to read the whole article or look at anything else that I talk about in the episode, you can go down there and figure out about it. But anyways, GA News says, in his two-hour talk to the Gathering's residents, Tony James also revealed some other incredible details about his investigation that never made the news reports. One concerned, of all things, a rat's contribution to the investigation. A state trooper had been assigned to guard a lonely wooded area on the crash site. After many hours of doing his job and seeing no one around, he decided to amuse himself by chasing a rat that appeared in the woods nearby. He stalked the rat, following him finally to a tree where the rat becomes trapped in one of the tree's crevices. The guard noticed that the rat was carrying a billfold in his mouth that he had picked up in the area. The trooper grabbed the billfold and brought it in for examination. It was quite a find. The billfold had belonged to the terrorist pilot of the plane. It contained his passport and instructions from his supreme leader. There was enough information collected from the billfold to quickly conclude that the mastermind behind the attacks was Osama bin Laden. This fact was communicated to President George W. Bush, who announced it to the nation and the world at 8.30 p.m. that evening. Tony also told of a credit card they found stuck in a tree in the woods nearby. The card belonged to one of the terrorists and when it was traced revealed that it had been used to purchase tickets for at least six other flights around the country. Because of all flights in American airspace were immediately canceled after the Trade Center crashes, the flights carrying those suspected terrorists were quickly returned to their gates and the passengers sent home. The discovery of that card revealed the possibility that the catastrophes on September eleventh might have been more widespread had the flight embargoes not been put into effect. you know, so we are finding credit cards and trees. We have rats who are insisting assisting the investigation. just yet, some of the stories that are just kind of hard to believe when it comes to the official 9-11 narrative, stuff that could really make people scratch their head. And that's just a brief list of some of the stuff in relation to the hijackers. But for time's sake, we will omit other examples. This way, we can, you know, move on to some of the intelligence connections of the hijackers. And of course then get to the rumored plans for the crop duster biological terrorist attack so on september 16th of 2001 the san diego union tribune reported that agents from the fbi and the bureau of alcohol tobacco and firearms friday night sifted through belongings left behind by nawaf al-hamzi and khalid al-midhar who rented a room for september through december of last year in the Lemongrome home of prominent muslim leader abdusattar Sheikh, Sheikh, sorry but the publication would go on to say the retired san diego state university english professor said he often invites students to live in his five-bedroom house for companionship and to learn other cultures and languages the professor would grow fond of al hamzi who is one of the men who would attend the other hijackers and irish as they you know went about apartment hunting But after the professor learned of his former guest being identified in the 9-11 attacks, he would contact the FBI. But perhaps it was pretty easy for him to do that because he probably had them on speed dial considering that he had been an FBI asset for years. Yes, that's right. So later, Shaikh would not be allowed by the FBI to testify before the 9-11 congressional inquiry so huh i wonder why it is exactly that they want to let him testify but anyways um we'll just read a little bit from the 2001 anthrax deception about you know some other intelligence connections This was not the only case of hijacker connections to intelligence agencies. For example, it eventually came out that one of the hijackers, Ziad Jara, had three cousins alleged to have worked for intelligence agencies. One had worked for East German, West German, and Libyan intelligence, while the other two were arrested in Lebanon in 2008 and accused of spying for Israel. Possible connections between the hijackers and Israeli intelligence are especially interesting. A leaked 2001 document from the DEA, an agency of the Department of Justice, made it clear that over 120 Israeli intelligence personnel pretending to be art students were aggressively active in the U.S. during 2000 and 2001 in the same place as the hijackers. And to kind of just elaborate about this a little bit, I'm going to read from an article that was published in Counterpunch from a journalist named Christopher Ketchum that would summarize some of the facts regarding these Art students, um, or I should say, Israeli intelligence assets, but in retrospect, the fact that a large number of art students operated out of Hollywood within the 71-mile strip of territory mentioned above is intriguing to say the least. During 2001, the city just north of Miami was a hotbed of Al-Qaeda activity and served as one of the chief staging grounds for the hijacking of the World Trade Center planes in Pennsylvania Plain. It was home to 15 of the 19 future hijackers, 9 in Hollywood and 6 in the surrounding area. Among the 120 suspected Israeli spies posing is posing as art students more than 30 lived in the hollywood area and 10 in hollywood proper okay so it's also worth noting that in the six various urban centers that you know hijackers and al-qaeda dudes were hanging out there and there was also believed to be israeli spies lived or operated near one another and sometimes this was this distance between you know hijackers and Al Qaeda dudes and Israeli spies was of a distance of less than half a mile, and it's also telling that Israeli intelligence operatives in New York, when they're working underneath uh what's their name uh urban moving systems, that they you know were watching and waiting for the 9/11 attacks, and that they. Did some celebration and stuff so certainly some interesting things and we could talk a lot more about some of that in relationship to 9-11 but that would make this podcast about twice as long as it currently is so let's just finally get to what we've all been waiting for oh psych i did want to real briefly mention this real quick then there's also the case of uh one of many 9-11 missile whistleblowers, uh, Michael Springman, who worked at the U.S. consulate in Jeddah. And this consulate had a history of issuing visas to terrorists at the behest of the CIA. Uh, perhaps I will put a couple clips of him talking. If not, I will put a link down to a good video from Corbett Report that talks about Michael Springman's story in relationship to the Jeddah consulate. But, you know, they had people who were... Uh, issuing visas to terrorists to mujahideen during you know all that stuff that was going on in afghanistan and with uh you know between the soviet union and the u.s and i mean even if you don't want to believe that 9-11 was an inside job at the highest levels you know maybe in conjunction with some you know not just u.s intelligence but perhaps you know israeli intelligence as well or, or something along that lines even if All that stuff seems far-fetched to you. Well, it's kind of hard to avoid that the U.S. was responsible in some sort of way or another. You know, the safe belief when it comes to this is that this is an example of blowback for starting to fund the Mujahideen, who were kind of these, you know, fanatical Islamists over in the Middle East in order to try and own the Soviet Union. But, you know, whichever way you slice it, at some point in the story the cia and the american elites kind of bear some responsibility but anyways yeah i will uh, at least link the corporate report video to the michael springman stuff but it's just another example about how 14 of the 19 hijackers visas would be issued um, from the Jeddah consulate which is certainly disconcerting to say the least especially given their history of issuing visas to terrorists and i also think that i haven't read it but i'm pretty sure michael springman wrote a whole entire book on the subject could be wrong but if you want to learn more about that i will leave some resources down below but anyways now the moment we've all been waiting for the crop duster planes so we'll cover that and then we will close out the episode (laughs) So we've already discussed at length on the last episode, you know, some of the examples of the media discussing the possibility of a biological attack on America following the 9-11 attacks and leading up to the anthrax attacks. So there's no need to rehash all of that right now. For those of you who want to learn more about that, just go check out the last episode. But for those who, um, you know, do want to learn about that, you know, it's, it's all right there. But what we will do is cover an example that we haven't discussed yet, that ties directly into the 9-11 hijackers so during the period of time that transpired between the 9-11 and the anthrax attacks all 3,500 to 4,000 crop duster planes in america would be grounded by the faa and so mcqueen relates in the 2001 anthrax conspiracy um deception, my bad, that the main warnings that concerned these crop dusters began on September 22nd. So Time Magazine would publish on this day that the September 16th grounding of planes was due to the fact that U.S. law enforcement officials have found a manual on the operations of crop dusting equipment while searching terrorist hideouts. And the article also states, The discovery has added to concerns among government counterterrorism experts that the Bin Laden conspirators may have been planning or may still be planning to disperse biological or chemical agents from a crop-dusting plane normally used for agricultural purposes. So, the materials referred to in this article from Time was said to have been amongst the possessions of Zachariad Mosso. Sorry, I'm not good at pronouncing names as we've already stated, but he was said to have been involved with the hijackers. He was sometimes called the 20th hijacker. So a separate article from The Washington Post said that the FBI was asking operators of crop dusters to be on the lookout for suspicious activity in hangars you know if you see something say something and this same article would also talk of a cloud of microbes released from a small plane and warned of a possible biological attack so some of these you know we we talked about all kinds of other how there was you know runs on cipro the medication to prevent anthrax inception uh, infection, you know, leading up to the anthrax attacks. We have people in the Bush administration who are taking Cipro, who we talk about how that relates to Jerome Howard, who is with the dark winter simulations and all that in the last episode. But there was also talks about a possible crop duster attack. And so Rick Weiss, the author of the Washington Post article, would say, a National Guard unit with special training in bioterrorism was mobilized, as was a team with similar expertise from the Federal Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. And so, now I'm going to also read, once again, from the 2001 Anthrax Deception. The second piece of information, apparently responsible for the September 23rd to 24th grounding of crop dusters, appeared to be more significant. Information was released to the effect that between February February and September 2001, groups of Middle Eastern men had visited a municipal airport in Belle Glade, Florida, about an hour's drive from Delay Beach, the coastal community where some of the alleged hijackers are believed to have lived, to inspect and inquire about crop dusters. Willie Lee, general manager of South Florida Crop Care, said the men described themselves as flight students. The apparent leader of the group, identified by employee James Lester as Mohammed Atta, was aggressive. I recognized him because he stayed on my feet all the time. I just about had to push him away from me, Lester said. Lee said the men pestered employees with odd questions about his 502 air tractor crop duster. He said they had asked about the range of the airplane, how much it could haul in chemicals, how difficult it was to fly, and how much fuel it could carry. During one visit, they followed Lester around, asking questions while he was working on one of the planes. Another time, they carried video equipment and asked for photographs inside the cockpit. And so, you know, we, we have these hijackers who are coming into the crop duster store, and who are asking all these peculiar questions who are acting like weirdos because it seems like everywhere they go that they're acting like weirdos and not as concerned about being uh, secretive and discreet as you would expect people who were going to conduct you know the biggest criminal attack on in all of American history but Ata would visit a couple more times in the ensuing months, and there would also be multiple other Middle Eastern men who would come in asking various questions, being weirdos, wanting more details, asking weird questions. Lee would actually say that men would come in like every weekend for a period of like six to eight weeks prior to the 9-11 attacks, you know, asking all these unusual questions. And... Around this same time, Attorney General John Ashcroft, on it was actually the same day as the publication of the article telling Lee's story, uh, September 24th, said before Congress, you know. So we have on Ashcroft going before Congress and saying that crop dusters could be used to distribute chemicals or biological weapons of mass destruction, and he would say that Mohammed Atta had been compiling information on crop dusters, and so the following day it was reported that Atta apparently walked into a US Department of Agriculture Office in Florida last year and asked about a loan to buy a crop duster plane and so the key witness to this John L Bryant was told by authorities not to speak about it apparently so kind of interesting so you know after the The stories in fear-mongered would begin to proliferate amongst politicians and the mainstream media about the potential of crop dusters being used in a biological attack. I mean, even George W. Bush would discuss this possibility in a speech, you know, in public. This idea was, you know, nothing new. Uh, Using a plane with tanks and nozzles for aerial dispersal of biological weapons had been developed by who else but the U.S. in the mid-50s and the 60s. And the narrative that Iraq was working on developing this ability was actually beginning to be argued in the '90s, which kind of goes back to how not only were the i was the idea seeded into the public consciousness that there could be some sort of biological attack following the 9/11 attacks, but that this could, you know, be an anthrax attack, and it could even be through crop dusters and that this next attack would be by muslim terrorists and that they would probably be backed by iraq as the state actor you know which as we've already mentioned this just fits right into the neocom playbook for the middle east so the desert news would publish an article titled could iraq spread death via remote crop dusters with the article speaking of saddam's anthrax and his commitment to hanging on to the crop duster system that they were working on to disperse some sort of biological agent and he supposedly called this the doom day option so this is just another example of some of the propaganda that was going on around the time of the 2001 9-11 and anthrax attacks which were all trying to link, you know, Muslim terrorists possibly backed by Iraq, so on and so forth, but I'll try to refrain from being too redundant. So let's return to the story of Atta seeking a loan from Janelle Bryant, because it's just truly bizarre, as reported in the Observer on September 30th, 2001, and it's just yet another example of absolutely ridiculous, non-secretive behavior on the part of the hijackers. So the article reads... Otta was under surveillance between January and May last year after he was reportedly observing buying large quantities of chemicals in Frankfurt, apparently for the production of explosives and for biological warfare. The US agents reported to have travel to have trailed Otta are said to have failed to inform the German authorities about their investigation. And we don't have time to go into the story about Otta's time in Frankfurt, but anyways. Otto would come to the United States and he would attempt to acquire a crop duster and he would in Florida try to get this loan for a crop duster from Bryant, which as McQueen points out in his book, he was still presumably, you know, at this time being tracked by US agents. And so Bryant, when she would be interviewed on June 6th of 2002 by Brian Ross, I think he's an ABC guy, if I'm not wrong. Um, But it was through this interview that the public would finally start to learn some more of the details about the story, you know, so over a year after this event took place. um, But after 9-11, Bryant would see Atta's photo in the the newspaper and would tell the authorities that she recognized this man as someone who had tried to acquire a $650,000 loan for a crop duster. And as we get into the story... It's no surprise that she remembered Otto because he was truly acting like a weirdo, a true freak. But he made sure that she knew his name and how to spell it, which you you know obviously do when you're trying to be super secretive. But I guess he was applying for a loan, so he would have had to put his name down on it at, at some point. But he also explained that he wanted to modify the aircraft to hold a very large tank and that he would run the spray nozzles along the wingspan. He said that by doing this, that he could do all the spraying that he needed in one flight. There wouldn't be any need to land and to refill his tank or do any of that business. But, you know, Brian would express some doubts about this because something about crop duster planes is they need to be small. They need to be agile. And this just wouldn't really be feasible. But he said that he would have no problems doing this because he was an engineer. And so then when Brian explained to him that he couldn't leave the office with, you know, $650,000 in cash, because, you know, apparently Atta, the guy who's smart enough to be one of the ringleaders of the attack on the most heavily defended airspace, didn't understand that at the loan office that they don't just walk into the, you know, frickin' vault with, <laughs> and retrieve $650,000. So he would spaz out um, after this, and he would say that... You know, with the lack of security in the building, what would stop him from going behind the desk and slitting her throat and taking the money and the large safe in the office? And uh, she would say then that she knew martial arts, like, you know, which I don't know. That would have been funny if she kicked Otta's butt. But anyways, and she would also tell him that he wasn't eligible for a loan in the first place, given the fact that he was not an American citizen. So then Otto would talk about how intrigued he was with an aerial photo of Washington, D.C. that was hung on the wall, and he would actually toss cash onto the desk wanting to buy it, and he took great note of the monuments, specifically the Capitol, the White House, and the Pentagon, and said that he wanted to visit Washington, and then he proceeded to ask Brian if she knew what the security was like in various buildings there. You know, So very discreet and secretive, as you would expect. And then he would go on to speak of an organization called Al Qaeda. Before going on to say that Osama bin Laden would someday be the world, be known as the world's greatest leader. And so, you know, McQueen says of this event that it's either pure fiction or that Atta was no secret of Al Qaeda leader, but he was someone who was laying down tracks and to make himself unforgettable. And I would uh, tend to agree with the latter, and I think that that's kind of where McQueen leads, even though he doesn't specifically say it. But regardless, either way, it's a fiction, no matter how you slice it. So obviously this whole crop duster bit was, you know, meant to tie the nine eleven attacks to the anthrax attacks. And, you know, there's other things that we talked about last episode that were meant to tie these attacks together in the public mind. The anthrax letters were addressed 9-11 at the top of them, and you have hijackers like Ata who were involved with all this crop duster nonsense, all kinds of stuff that were meant to link the attacks together. But after the anthrax attacks could not be defended as some sort of foreign group attack, you know, maybe possibly backed by Iraq or whatever, they would drop all these strange stories because then that would also bring into question the official narrative of not only the anthrax attacks but the 9-11 attacks as well. And so, you know, it should be pointed out, too, that the massive amounts of anthrax that would be needed to disseminate via crop duster would be outside of the capabilities of a group like Al-Qaeda working by themselves. I mean, you would need large-scale industrial production capacity for this level of anthrax to produce gallons of, you know, liquid anthrax, and and as well as high-tech transportation logistics and a lot of money to throw at a sort of project like this, all stuff that really strains credulity to believe that Al-Qaeda would be responsible for, you know, the group who's being led by a guy in a cave on dialysis. I mean, it's all just pretty ridiculous. And, you know, so why would they even run with this story the neocons in the first place well because in order for them to get this level of anthrax had the story had worked they would obviously need some sort of state backer which it seems like the group behind all of this stuff were desperately trying to frame iraq for being state sponsors of terrorist attacks happening in the united states but the most important part of this whole story the reason why i decided to do a follow-up episode after my first episode on the anthrax attacks is that the plans for crop duster attacks aren't talked anymore in regards to the anthrax attacks and that's because the crop duster story was only useful while the foreign group theory the idea that you know some foreign terrorist coming here to wreak havoc um, were used to explain the anthrax attacks. But now that even the FBI admits that the anthrax attack attacks were domestic in origin, and given that the hijackers were involved in this operation, it would follow that the 9-11 attacks were also a domestic operation. And so that's going to be pretty much it for today's episode. There was a few other things that I would have liked to have talked about, kind of like the St. Petersburg letters There was a series of three letters that were um, sent out from Florida that are you know argued sometimes not to be part of the official anthrax attacks but it was just copycats with inert powder that were sent to people well that was one of the letters that judith miller who we talked about last time received who wrote the book germs which just so happened to come out right before the anthrax attacks and she was doing all kinds of fear-mongering about iraq and russia and you know, Muslim terrorist doing some sort of biological attack, and then that helped boost her career. And Judith Miller was also a participant in the Dark Winter Simulations, which we talked about last episode. We delved into some depth about it, but I mean, we could have done just a whole uh, series of podcasts on that alone. But if you want to learn more about that, I put some articles down in the description of the episode from Whitney Webb, where she goes into the dark winter simulations and as well talked about how some of those people became involved later on with things like the rollout of COVID, and we also discussed about some of the similarities between the dark winter simulations and things like event 201 it just seems so like when they do these simulations these elites do these simulations they have a scary tendency to (laughs) become a reality afterwards and so you know we we talked a little bit about that but yeah i wanted to talk a little bit about the C- st petersburg letters with these inert stuff and uh you know it seems like as if they this is just another thing to where they dropped that from the official narrative because it tends to bring into question the narrative that bruce ivans did because they were sent from florida and if you just look on at a simple you know Time-wise, Bruce Ivins couldn't have drip, you know, made the trek to Florida to mail these letters and do all the other things that they accused him of. If you want to learn more about that, you can check out the 2001 Anthrax Deception. That is the primary source for today. So there's a lot of good information in there. Highly suggest that everyone check it out. It's a good book. It's not too long. Very easy read. Very interesting stuff. And we covered a lot of the information that's in it. But there's also a lot of other good information inside the book that we did not cover. But anyhow, that's going to be all for today's episode. I hope everybody enjoyed it. I hope everybody has a happy New Year's. Look forward to doing a a whole year full of juicy podcast for you guys. So anyways, enjoyed it uh, doing this podcast. Love you all. Happy New Year. Talk to y'all soon.